good evening, and thank you so much to the Rappaport family for uh, gracious invitation and uh, the opportunity to lecture um, um, in the memorial lecture. Um, um, and I hope our words tonight will be uh, a merit um, um, to the memory uh, of um, uh, your father um, and, um, and those who we are um, have in mind tonight. Um, it's not so easy to speak about Pesach um, at the 16th, <laughs> you know, round, go round. <laughs> I was invited in year one. I would have had a lot of uh, razzle-dazzle to lay before your eyes, but going 16th, I figured I maybe should change it up and uh, speak about another aspect that's embedded in Pesach and gets a little lost, although post-Pesach we are so fond of it. Actually, everybody has fun with the Omer. It's the time that those who are uh, a little bit OCD get to, uh, you know, <laughs> we keep everybody else in line um, and make sure we're doing the count and uh, we're in check. I, I, I struggle with it, um, but I have to admit that when I make it through, it's such a sense of vindication that I, too, can make it to 50. Um, so, uh, so it's certainly great fun, and uh, uh, probably has deep ideas in it about mindfulness and how we use our time. Um, and those are interesting ideas I won't talk about. Um, I want to try to uh, do something that's a little bit more critical historical here by looking at um, some rabbinic sources and then extra rabbinic sources um, and trying to um, figure them out. Now, I will at first begin reading innocently, but uh, following uh, the great uh, French um, critic, Paul Ricoeur, no doubt we will start to apply the hermeneutics of suspicion um, when some of these sources don't totally add up. And then we will be charting in gray area, and a little bit you'll be at my mercy um, from the way I will suggest to navigate, and you do not need to buy in. But I think I challenge you to think of other ways to figure things out, and no doubt maybe some of you will come up with interesting alternatives, um, which I hope this does generate thinking. But let's begin uh, before uh, the challenge, just in a sort of uh, contextualizing. I want to actually not just speak about the Omer, but about a great rabbinic figure's spin on one aspect of the Omer. The figure is none other than the rabbinic hero, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakat. Hopefully that's a name familiar to many in the audience. It should be. He is one of our heroic rabbinic leaders throughout generations. We know him well from the legends about destruction of the Second Temple where Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, in a legend that's told in various rabbinic sources, um, finds a way to escape from the besieged Jerusalem, and in the Bavli's version, recites that very famous request, tamely Yavne v'chachamea, which on some level produces the Drisha Institute in the 21st century. Because Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai realized that when the polity is imperiled, when Jewish empowerment is on its last leg, there's a more important focus 
to Jewish identity, and that is Jewish tradition and Jewish learning. And we can survive if we invest in that. So you all should also continue to support the Drisha Institute. <laughs> A very famous scholar of rabbinics, Jacob Neusner, should live long and be healthy and be productive. A voluminous writer of scholarship on rabbinic literature sort of made his name in biographies of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. He actually shifted his scholarly agenda around treatment of rabbinic literature about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Maybe more about that another time. But he has a quote about why this figure deserves such great attention here on page one. The problem is I have ten pages with many, many sources, and I'm not even on the first one of page one. But that's not going to throw me. At a certain point, I'll just skip to page nine. Okay, but not yet. So page one, source one. Jacob Neusner, coming to maturity at one of the great turning points in the history of Judaism, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai set the course followed by subsequent generations for many centuries. While the faith of Israel undoubtedly has been enriched by many other figures from biblical times to our own day, none apart from Moses and Jeremiah held such extraordinary responsibility. Yochanan guided both the faith of the people of Israel beyond the disaster of the destruction of the Second Temple and then laid foundations which have endured to this day. Wow. Top three, according to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Moshe, Yirmiyahu, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Of figures, singular figures, who faced crises in the Jewish story, in our story of origins and survival and enduring into posterity. He's up there in the big three. Given that he's such a grand figure, it's interesting to examine what is it that he did in his lifetime that we could confirm at least according to readings in rabbinic literature. According to rabbinic tradition, what can we register as his positive acts? Especially in early sources, because no doubt when you have such a legendary figure, legends accumulate, and that's what part of Neusner tried to do in his scholarship, tried to pare back what can we say with certainty seems to be early statements about what Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai did, and what are later accumulative uh, traditions that get added on to this figure and this legend. And I wouldn't say the later ones are necessarily incorrect, but they have less historical certainty. The earlier ones presumably have greater certainty and credibility. So what, according to early rabbinic tradition, did he do? Well, among the things he did is he made several takanot, enactments. We read here a Mishnah on page one, in the middle. Barishona hayadulav mital b'midash shiva u'vindina yom echad mishcharav beit hamidash hitkin Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai sheyelulav mital b'midina shiva. I'm reading right there in the middle on page one, and underneath there's English. In the beginning, actually this might not even be in the English, so just listen along. In the beginning. In temple times, meaning, 
the way it would work on Sukkot was you would shake the lulav and the four minim in the Beit HaMikdash in the temple for seven days. But if you were outside the temple, let's say you were in Tel Aviv, otherwise not Tel Aviv then, but in the Galilee or in Babylonia, etc., you would just shake a lulav for one day. Only in the temple would you do it for seven times. Post-destruction, the era through which Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai lives, one presumes that there is going to be a spiritual trauma here. Because, of course, we have to realize that there's this great pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple, every year. To this day, a lot of us are lucky enough once in a while to be in Israel for one of the festivals. But that's certainly a biblical mandate that was followed. People ascended to the temple. And in the temple, they rejoiced for seven days with the lula. And now there's no longer a temple. So what's going to be? We're only going to shake the lula for one day? Won't that just reinforce the tragic loss that we really don't have as spiritual epicenter? Comes along Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and makes a decree that we understand its power and force. And it needs somebody with his shoulders to make such a decree. And he says, wherever you are, shake the lulav for seven days. And that's why to this day, we sit here in New York City on Sukkot and we shake the lulav throughout the duration of the holiday, not just the day one. That's one of his enactments. If you turn to page 3, you'll see some other enactments. Top of page 3. Yom Tov Shal Rosh Hashanah, Shafal Yot B'Shabbat. B'Amidash Hayut Tokin Avalob B'Mdinam. In the top of page 3, and you can follow in English in the middle. M'Shachara Beit HaMikdash, Yitkin Rabbi Yochanan Bezaka, Shayut Tokin, B'Chol Makom Shiyesh Bo Beitin. So Rosh Hashanah, went through various periods in history. It was a one-day holiday, a two-day holiday, but if it full, fell out on Shabbat, especially if it was one day, but even if it was two days, it fell out on Shabbat, so you're not going to blow the shofar on Shabbat. Now that we know is our practice. But in truth, in temple times, they did blast the shofar on Shabbat. What about post-destruction? Again, such a holy day before we're dealing with Sukkot, now we're dealing with Rosh Hashanah, no doubt, a lot of people congregated around the temple, and suddenly you're not going to blow the shofar on the Shabbat? That's just too devastating. Comes along Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai with his broad shoulders and says, we can continue to blast the shofar on Shabbat as long as we are in a religious center. We can't do it in the temple anymore, so we'll do it wherever there's a court, or a significant court, or maybe just the Avna court, but the practice of blasting the shofar on Shabbat will continue post-Temple. And he had some other practices. I'll just tell you one outside from the end of this list here in the Mishnah and Rosh Hashanah. The end of the list here in Mishnah and Rosh Hashanah talks about Kiddush HaKodesh, setting the calendar. We know that the Jewish calendar, the rabbinic calendar, is lunar with adjustments to solar, right? Now, as we look for the new moon, that's why we have to look every year, we have to figure out when's Pesach going to fall out, and how's this going to mess up my, you know, my work schedule, because every year it's going to be different, right? That's how we have Hanukkah and Thanksgiving this year, and you know, it's, things bounce around when you follow a lunar and you compare it to a solar. Now, it's not a pure lunar calendar that we have, because we do some corrections and adjustments through our leap years to make sure that Pesach, Passover, does fall out in Aviv, in the spring. 
and the Sukkot falls out in Asif time in the fall. So it's primarily a lunar through the sighting of the new moon, but with certain seasonal adjustments to keep it somewhat in sync with the solar, as opposed to like the Muslim calendar, where it's purely lunar and Ramadan could really fall out any time throughout the year on a solar calendar. Okay, so the question is, where would you receive the testimony about the new moon? Especially without a temple, because in temple times, we imagine the main place to go is to the court that's sitting on the temple mount. But now, where will you go? Comes along Rabbi Yochum ben in the very last line of these Mishnah Yodim Rosh Hashanah, page 3, top half of the page, but the last line. Hikin Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai, Shafilu Rosh Petim Bechomakom, Shelo Yuhaidim Hochim Ela Lemakom Havad. That they'll have one designated uh, uh, venue to which they have to go to a test about the new moon to set the national calendar. So we see how he's dealing with very real religious issues of how to live in a post-temple world to try to make certain adjustments to keep the flow going. Back to page one. The Mishnah in Sukkah actually continues. This also has a parallel in this in that Mishnah on page 3, but we'll see it back on page 1. He made another Takana. Back to the Mishnah. This everybody has to follow along. It's on page 1, in that middle in the Hebrew, or you can follow along in the English on the bottom. In the Mishnah, sort of the second line, he also said, V'shiyeh yom Hanei for Yom Henef Kulo Asur. Just to explain what this means, just in simple terms. He said that on the day of waving, you could fill in a little of the blanks, waving of the Omer. So we know this is the day we start Sfirat HaOmer, meaning the second day of Passover, the day after the first day. The Torah says, Mimacharat HaShabbat, which the rabbis explain, the day after the first day of Pesach. The first day of Pesach we do Shvita, we refrain from working. So on the second day, after that first day, we count the Omer. In temple times, you wouldn't just count the Omer, you'd first bring a special offering, a barley offering, which you would wave. That's part of the ritual. Certain rituals in the temple, you would take either an animal or a flower offering, and before you offer it, sometimes you would have a procedure where you'd wave it. You'd shake it. A certain ritual shaking of, like the way we shake our lulav, they would wave in various directions the barley offering. That's what they would do. And then they would begin to count. Now that barley offering also has, I'm sorry, this gets a little technical, but Try to follow along here. That barley offering that you bring is from the new harvest, because that's actually the time of the barley harvest. So you bring that barley offering to the temple, and that's from the first fruits of the barley. So you bring the barley offering to the temple, and that actually was a matir that authorized everybody, wherever they're living throughout the land of Israel, that now they too may enjoy new produce. Comes along Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and he says that on that second day of Passover, 
right? We're living in the land of Israel, so the second day is usually, you know, what we call the Cholamoe. But on that second day of Passover, when you normally would bring that barley offering, and only then would you be permitted to eat, so let's say you'd bring it at noon on the second day, then everybody could eat afternoon. Comes on Rabbi Yochan ben and says, wait, there's not going to be any barley offering that you're going to bring, because there's no temple. So he says that entire second day is prohibited. You may not eat yet. So you could only on day three begin to eat new produce, new barley. If you count up in the Mishnah, Rabbi Yochan ben maybe made six takanot, if you look in the Bavli, there's a tradition, he made nine takanot, takanot, takanot means an enactment and legislation. There are nine pieces of legislation. He's up there with Moses and Jeremiah, according to Professor Neusner. He does nine things. Actually, this is one of the ones we're very confident about in early sources. It's repeated in Mishnah, Sukkah, Mishnah, Rosh Hashanah, the Sifra, the Minyarsha, Lachan, Bayikra. This was certainly, in rabbinic tradition, one of his spare few enactments. If he only made five enactments, and you're going down as the legend, will this be in your top five, or your top nine? What was this enactment? This seems really quite technical. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said that on day two of Passover, where normally we'd bring a barley offering, so comes along Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and says, well, we won't bring the barley offering today. So wait till the end of the day and only on day three start eating your new produce. I don't know. I imagine there are, if we really thought it through, all sorts of technical halachic issues that we wonder how exactly would they operate in a post-temple world. And this is one of them that he stood up and made a loud enactment about. We're in good hands. Rabbinic leadership. We focus on the big issues. This is the big issue? Now, if you look in the sugya, it's actually going to become even more of a puzzle. Because if you look in the Gemara, we'll just read a little bit in the Gemara here, in page one in the middle, that you're prohibited to eat that entire second day. I apologize that it's a little of a technical starting point, but I guarantee you, if you follow along, this is beyond, goes beyond technicalities. Shia Yom Hanef asked the Gemara Mai Taima why he make this decree that you can't eat that entire day two from the new barley. Meherai Yibane Bet Hamidash Viyamru Eshtaked Milo Achalnu Behir Mizrak Hashtenami Necho I'll read just a little bit and then I'll explain outside. Vinu lo yadi deshtaked lo habibet mikdash yomizrach meitir. Hashtadika bet mikdash omer matir. Okay, let me say it outside. It'll be a little easier and then you could look later on at home inside. Says Rabbi, uh, the Gemara like this. What indeed, I'm adding a little bit out of order, but this is in the Gemara. The Gemara says like this. Actually, in a post-temple world, how does it work? When can you eat the new barley offering? Why on day three can you actually eat it, right? I mean, you're never bringing the barley offering, so when exactly can you eat the new barley? So the Gemara, of course, assumes that without bringing the barley offering in a non-temple reality, at a certain point, you're allowed to eat. So the question is, when's that point? So actually, if you read the Gemara, the Gemara says that you could eat at sunrise of day two. 
So actually, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is making a stringency. This doesn't make sense. In a temple world, you have to wait till you bring the barley offering. Without a temple, you actually the second day too, that calendaric date begins, you could eat. So what's Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai concerned about? He's actually concerned that if, in a post-temple world, we start eating at sunrise of day two, but imagine then, down the road, the temple is rebuilt. So then people will think that you could eat at sunrise of day two, but in reality, you could only eat when the offering is brought. That's what his great concern is. This makes it even stranger. In other words, it's totally fine if you eat in the morning of day two. That's actually the, the rule. Rebbe is nervous. The Gemara actually then goes on and says, wait, I don't get it. When exactly is the temple built? Because if the temple was, let's say, will be built down the road Hanukkah time, everybody will know that there's a temple. And then by the time we get the Pesach, everybody will have plenty of time to tell the people, this year, wait till we bring the barley offering. So the Gemara actually can't even figure out how this works. So the Gemara says he's worried. If you read the Sugya, it really makes no sense. He's worried that the temple will be built on day one of Pesach. Then the Gemara says even day one, can't the word get out? So he's worried that it's going to be built at night between day one and day two. How is the entire temple going to be built at night between day one and day two? That's one question Rishonim asks. The other question they ask is, you're not even allowed to build a temple during the holiday or at night? The entire Shigya makes no sense. Rashi here makes a remarkable comment, a very famous Rashi. Rashi says the third temple is going to descend from heaven. This is something we know in our lore, and it's rooted in this Rashi. Okay, even... You know, if we could allow ourselves to go along with Rashi's great spiritual um, anticipation. That's the concern? The Meiri says something also remarkable. He says, people are going to be so excited to build the third temple that they'll violate the rules and build it on a holiday at night. That's what the these are all really interesting remarks by Rishonim, but they don't explain the sugya at all. Here's the puzzle. The puzzle is, what's going on with Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's enactment? Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai made four, maybe six, maybe nine enactments. One of them is that on day two of Passover, refrain from eating the barley the entire day long. Why did he make that enactment? That's my question. And I think the sugya, I say it politely, doesn't really answer that question. If you look in the Yerushalmi, in the parallel, you see it's missing a lot of what's in the Bible. Yerushalmi also tries to make sense of it. Actually, in the continuation of the sugya, it even gets even harder to follow. So the sugya, it's very hard to follow it from the way the Talmud explains it. So I'd like to humbly take a stab at it. I'm not sure I'm right, but take a stab at what was Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai doing when he made this enactment? Okay, even if it seems a little technical, it's an interesting question now that I think I've laid before you. The question is, you're a great rabbinic leader, and you know you have to make a choice of several enactments that hopefully will shepherd people through this crisis era. 
And one of those enactments is about day two of Passover and telling us certain regulations of the Omer and banning eating throughout that second day. Why is that up there on your agenda? Now, I've picked on this day two and this Omer ritual, and maybe not so fairly. In fact, if you look at some early sources, it seems clear that this Omer ritual is actually probably a bigger deal than we realize. Now, we don't focus so much on day two, we focus on Sfirat Omer. But that day two, that Yom Haneh for Yom Hanef, the day of the waving of the Omer, actually seems to have greater uh, stature. Its pedigree probably exceeds what you'd expect. Even in some rabbinic sources, if you want to look for one second on page five, We could see some hints, you know, you could look on your own. Page 5 in the middle. But let's look to the Torah on page 4. If you look in the Torah on page 4, in Leviticus chapter 23, by Yikrach HaPkimel, this is actually a very important chapter in the Torah. By Yikrach HaPkimel is one of the main chapters, probably the most elaborate chapter in the Torah, that tells us the laws of the festivals. Beginning with Shabbat, then going through the Yamim no Ra'im and the Shalosh Regalim. So all the big Shabbat, the high holidays, and the three big festivals. They're all spelled out in chapter 23 of Vayikra. So let's follow along just a little bit. Chapter 23 of Vayikra, page 4 on the top of the Hebrew and the middle. In English, Vayidaber Hashem al-Moshel emor, Daber el-Bneisel v'amarta lehem mo'adei Hashem asher tikruo tam mikra'ei kodesh e'lehem mo'adai. These are my festivals, God announces in chapter 23 of Leviticus. And now I'm skipping a little bit with an ellipse here in verse 5. So beginning with Nisan, the first festival, this chapter is going to tell the festival. Actually, first it begins with Shabbat and then the festivals. These are my festivals. So the first one we encounter is Pesach. That makes sense. Verse 9. So it's listing the festivals, first Shabbat, then Pesach, actually the Korban Pesach and the remainder of Chag HaMatzot, and then in verse 9 through 14, what holiday are we up to? So this holiday, actually to us, doesn't seem like a holiday, but in the verses it sounds like it is a holiday. The holiday is that you do Ktsirah and Hava'ah and then Hanafah of the Omer you take that barley actually in the Torah and Shah doesn't tell us what species it is but this is the tradition across Jewish understanding that it is barley and you bring it because that's the time of the produce of the barley and you bring it as a type of a first fruit offering and you wave it that's in verse 11 V'hinifet Omer hence the name Yom Henef 
the day of the waving of the Omer. Because the Torah indeed seems to designate this among its list of festivals. Then, in verse 15, it tells us about the counting, which climaxes in verse 21, or actually already in verse uh, 17, in the holiday of Shavuot, or what we call the festival Shavuot, festival of weeks, of the seven weeks going from the Yom Hanef to Shavuot. So if you look in the Torah, really with sort of fresh eyes, it does sound in chapter 23 like it's significant. Because if it was just this bridge and this technicality, one wonders whether it would be mentioned here at all, and certainly not in this elaborate description. Plus there's offerings that are brought on that day, not just the Omer, but there's also Korban, etc. So it does seem to have, I'm not saying this is foolproof, but I'm saying it does seem to be more prominent than sometimes we realize, given its um, treatment of four verses here in this chapter, five verses here in this chapter, listing the festivals, which in total is just some 43 or 44 verses. Yes? No, they would have to bring it to the temple. So who would bring it to the temple? And Chazal's understanding it's more Beitin that does this on behalf. Um, but it would have to be brought to the temple. I would say just as much as people participate in other holidays, you would imagine you know, participation here too. Um, but that's a good question. Okay, if you look here on the next page at an interesting passage in Philo, page 5 on the top. Philo, who lives in Alexandria in the end of the first century BC into the first century CE, and this leading Jewish, he's one of us. He's a Gullus Jew. He's a diaspora Jew. Except he's more important than we are. Um, at least than I am. Or uh, a lot of us are. Because he was the leading Jew of the diaspora in Alexandria in late first century BC into first century CE. And aside from leading the Jewish community and having all sorts of political ties with the Roman Empire. He also was a great philosopher and a great exegete. The more I read him, the more I appreciate that. And he had this great mastery of Torah. It's a question whether he knew how to read Hebrew. He might have only read it in the Greek translation, but that didn't stop him. And he wrote a lot about the Torah. And he says all sorts of fascinating things, like this passage. Now there are ten festivals. There are. <laughs> I don't know there are ten festivals. How's he going to get to ten? The first is that which anyone will perhaps be astonished to hear called a festival. This festival is every day. Every day. I'm not sure I would have gone along with it. He is such an optimist. Okay. <laughs> what about the bad hair days? Okay. Every day is a festival. That's a nice attitude. Okay. Second festival? And now we go, oh my God, are you only going to get ten? <laughs> if you're going to count every day, this might be a long list. Okay, one, every day. Two, every Shabbat. Three, every Rosh Chodesh. And now Rosh Chodesh is on such firm ground. If you're counting every day and every Shabbat, Rosh Chodesh is really a great event. 
Okay, maybe the, the, the takeaway is at least let's appreciate Rosh Chodesh. Okay, the fourth, Passover. The fifth, the first fruits of the corn, the sacred sheep. The day of the Omer. He has a strange ordering here because then he has the, the sixth is the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Because I think that goes for the remain, in other words, throughout the holiday. What was the comment? Oh, coin, yeah, but this is a translation of the Greek. We'd have to, I assume it's the, the right word for what's in the Bible in the Greek translation. And onward. Okay, so he counts it among his list of festivals, although he has ten festivals. So if you look right beneath, we have an Otzer Midrashim, a rabbinic source. The problem is there's different manuscripts on this, but at least in uh, one of the manuscript uh, traditions, Shiva Mo'adotein. This rabbinic literature doesn't have ten in this list, but it has seven. Shabbat, Chag HaMatzot, and the third one, Chag HaOmer. Okay, so what we've seen here is Rabbi Yochanan ben has done something strange about making an enactment that on day two, the day of the Omer, no eating that entire day, that's puzzling. The Talmud does not, I think, fully explain to us what he's doing. We're putting that on the side, and now we're saying, well, let's learn a little bit about, more about this Omer and how big a deal it was. And here we start to see interesting things. In the Torah itself, actually the Omer seems to have a greater stature than we might assume. And among some of the great, at least one great Second Temple um, authority, late Second Temple authority, it's listed out there as a day that you should know about. One of our festivals. And even in a later rabbinic source, it is singled out, at least in one version of it, as one of the seven holidays. What about in more mainstream rabbinic literature? Not some sort of obscure Midrash one version of it, but in Mishnahs and Toseptas, an early rabbinic literature from, you know, edited around the end of the second century CE. What do we see there? So here we see some teachings in Tosefta that don't fully call it a holiday or a festival, I wouldn't say that, but still probably invoke it in ways that are surprising to us, although less surprising against the backdrop of looking again at Bayikra and looking at Philo and seeing this later in Midrash. So look here on page 5 in the middle. Yom Tom Vahavishon Shal Pesach Korin. So what do you read on the first day of uh, Pesach in the Beit HaKneset in reading from Kriyat Torah. So you read Vayikra Chavkimel. But it's interesting how that chapter, meaning the chapter that we just peeked at, about the festivals, how is it described in the Tosefta? The Parshat Hanei for Henef Torah Kohanim. So here in this rabbinic passage, that entire Vayikra 23 is described as, I would have said, Parshat HaMoadim, or Parshat Pesach. Here it's described as Parshat Hanei. It's a surprising characterization. So maybe we might sort of, you know, pay less attention when we get to verses 9 through 14. They're getting very agricultural and technical and whatever. No, that's actually central to this chapter, this very precious chapter that we read out loud in the holidays, chapter 23 of Leviticus. Or in this Tosefta Megillah, 
It tells us different things that you do throughout certain days, and it talks about Yom Hanayf, and then it talks about what happened in Sukkot, in the Sukkah, and the Lulav, etc. So here too, it's in good company. And then there's Mishnah Menachot. Mishnah Menachot is part of a tractate we don't get to as often, but we should. It's a tractate about Menachot in general means the offerings, the flower offerings that we would bring. But in chapter 10 of Mishnah Menachot, actually in the Talmud it's chapter 6, but the layout of the chapters is different. In, um, if you just study it in the Mishnah Yod, it's chapter 10. Mishnah Menachot has an entire chapter devoted to the Omer, the Henef HaOmer. So we could just look a little bit at this opening passage. I'm on the bottom of page 5, or if you're following the English, it's into page 6. Rabbi Ishmael Omer HaOmer HaYabed Ba'a B'Shabbat Mishalosh Shein V'chol M'Chamesh V'chachamim Omim Echad B'Shabbat V'chad B'chol Mishalosh Okay, so the opening already starts to get quite technical, but from Mishnah Menachot, chapter 10, from the opening Mishnah through the last Mishnah, I'm just trying to show you, you have an entire chapter devoted to the Omer. The rules, how large a quantity would you cut down, what instruments you use to collect it, when you would do it, all the way through the last Mishnah. By the way, how much Mishnah is there on the holiday of Hanukkah? Like nothing. So an entire chapter of Mishnah is not insignificant. Entire chapter is devoted to this Omer. And you almost wonder how much is there about the Omer to have an entire chapter about. Well, you get to Mishnah Gimel, and this is the one I want to focus on a little bit more, you see how they fill up a chapter. Mishnah Gimel, I'm on page 5 on the bottom. Mishnah Gimel. Do you have the same pagination as me? Am I yes. Right? Okay, yes. good. And page 6 in the English, if you're following the English on top. Ketzad Hayu Osin. How would we go about this Omer ritual? Shluchei Beitin Yotzin Me'erev Yom Tov. The emissaries of the court of the rabbinic court, would actually go into the fields on the eve of Passover. They would take these barley branches that were going to, the sheaves, whatever, that were going to cut, and in advance, they would go out to the fields and they would wrap them they would put a type of a uh, wrapping around them to designate what we're going to cut down. It's a little strange. Just go when you're going to cut it down. You have to in advance, send out the rabbis into the fields. Maybe they don't know their way around the fields so much, okay? But uh, they go out there on the eve of Passover and they figure out where they're going to cut and they flag it. Keeps going on. And all neighboring, and this gets to the question before, all the neighboring towns gather up and congregate into that field. Meaning, at that 
night of the, of, in other words, after the first day of Pesach, when we begin the second night, what in us we think of the second Seder, but in Israel it's the post, the first day of Pesach, that second night, everybody after the day one of Pesach, everybody from the neighboring town starts gathering the field at night. And the Mishnah tells us explicitly, Today she'en niktsar be'esek gadol. So it should be a scene. That's the thing to do. There's no matabal, right? What do you do? You go to the Omer event. Kevan shechashecha Omer lahem When it's dark out, he says to them, who's he? The hero of the scene. He cuts the Omer. Bahashemesh did the sun set? It's dark. What are you asking? Did the sun set? Omrim hin. It did. He repeats. Bahashemesh omrim hin. We got some ritual going on here. Then he says, Magalzu, should I use this sickle? Omrim hin. Yes, use it. Magalzu, omrim hin. Everybody says, go for it. Kupazu, should I collect it in this basket? Omrim hin. Kupazu, omrim hin. The Shabbat, if the first day of Pesach was a Friday, so now this ritual is happening on Shabbat, and that is a little bit more daring to do this work on Shabbat, although it's temple-related work, which usually you do do on Shabbat. Omer lahem Shabbat zu. Omrim hin. Shabbat zu omrim hin. Yes, do it on Shabbat. Ektor, should I really do it? Behem omrim lo ktor. Ektor, behem omrim lo ktor. Now we get how we fill up a whole paragraph Mishnah. Okay? Because this whole ritual is being uh, fabricated out of nothing, right? And turned into this whole performance. So Shabbat, actually the Mishnah got tired and only told the task twice. But actually, each phase you repeat three times. And then the Mishnah gives it away. Why all this hoopla? Because if you're making such smoke, right? You're probably trying to cover up the fire. And what's the fire? Because this entire ritual is totally controversial. Because there's a sectarian group of Jews who think that this entire ritual is problematic. Why? Shahayu amim omer Because the sectarian position of the Balthusians, the Baitusim, not so much that they think this ritual is wrong, they think its timing is wrong. Why? And this is probably familiar to some of you, but let's get all on the same page on this point. Because the Torah said in Vayikra Gimel, if you want to see it inside, you can together here in Vayikra Gimel, page 4, on the top in the Hebrew in the middle of the English, in verse 11, Actually, in Vayikra Chavkimot, it doesn't give a date. When do you do it? Nimacharat HaShabbat. After the Shabbat. 
So I snuck in before what's the Shabbat in rabbinic tradition or the Pharisees? Day one of Pesach. So when do you do it? Day two of Pesach. That's the rabbinic tradition, that's the Pharisaic tradition. And the Balthusians think we got it all wrong and when Macharat HaShabbat? Sunday. Which Sunday? Apparently the Sunday following the Shabbat in Pesach. So they think we got this ritual all wrong and we're doing it on a totally wrong date. And by the way, if it's always on a Sunday, then you would never do it on Shabbat. So why we, do we make this whole hoopla? Because the rabbis or the Pharisees, they're not sneaking around, they're not scared of the Balthusians, they're trying to emphatically declare, this is the time for the ritual, we want a Asa Gadol, we want a whole hoopla, we want everybody out there in the fields, and we want to actually declare loudly and clearly that even if it's on a Shabbat, this is when we do our ritual. And Balthusians, you go stick it, right? That's what this Mishnah is saying. Actually, if you had a little more time, if you look in the parallel Tosefta, on page 6, the Tosefta um, actually just has, you could see it um, on your own, but on page 6, the Tosefta has a more spare version. By the time we get to the Mishnah, it's even more elaborate. Actually, there's also an interesting Midrash Halakha. Midrash Halakha says, you must do the cutting down on page 6 at night and you must do the counting in the day. So if you add up all this rabbinic stuff, what do you have? You're doing a ritual at night, a ritual in the day, you're making that entire night, day filled with ritual. The ritual becomes a very public, cultic ritual very impressive in its performative dimensions, assuming the historicity of the source, if it's really capturing what would happen, and also very impressive rhetorically. Right? We encounter more its rhetorical rendition in the Mishnah. The Mishnah that's being recited and recorded is in 200 CE. This is no longer going on. But there's an elaborate, full chapter with this elaborate ritual performance and we recite rhetorically what would happen. And we get some of what's going on. There's a sectarian dimension. Now let's bring Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai back into the picture. What's Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's connection to all this? So if you follow his career and certain snapshots we have in his career, even in early rabbinic sources, one of the things Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai did as a leader of the rabbinic Jews or the Pharisaic Jews, or sort of the segue from Pharisaic to a type of succession, and whether this succession is complicated, but uh, you know the rabbinic, one of the rabbinic leaders, one of the things he was involved in, bottom of page six, is sectarian disputes. So look here on the bottom of page 6. Just very quickly. The Tztukim say, you can see it, you know what, I'll describe it outside because I see the hours late and I still have a bunch I need to get through. So I'll just say it outside. Bottom of page 6, there are two different snapshots from early rabbinic sources of polemics. Where the Tztukim, so now it's not the Balthusians, but it's the Sadducees, start complaining against the Pharisees. You have it all wrong with your laws of purity and impurity, and who's their interlocutor and the debater? Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, that's the Mishnah Yadayim. 
Actually, the Tosefta on the bottom of page 6 has a more even aggressive scene here, where Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai deliberately tricks a Sadducee into exposing his Sadducean ways with the Paraduma ritual, because they have different rules of what it takes to purge yourself and cleanse yourself. And he has a hunting suspicion, right, that this person who's about to do the Paraduma ritual, probably a high priest, is problematic, and he exposes him. And then when he exposes him, he actually inflicts on him a blemish, and then he's totally out pretty aggressive polemicizing. I presume, you know, in a favorable reading of Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai, that he thought this was really a momentous issue where he had to very much um, spearhead the Pharisaic and the rabbinic position. So it's clear from Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's career from early sources that he was a leading voice in sectarian disputes. What about in relationship to the Omer? Top of page 7. So here we have a Babylonian Talmudic elaboration. Actually, it's paralleled in a work called the Scullion on a work called Megillat Tamid. I don't have time to explain what all that stuff is right now. But in other words, we, we have a, a, a source, albeit a later source, that tells us, here at page 7 on the top, that there was actually a holiday. Let's read the top line. Tanurabanan, Elun Yamin Anabahan. There are certain days that we don't fast and that we don't eulogize. And in the second line, Mitinanya Moada. From the eighth of Nisan until the end of the holiday, the entire thing is festive. Why? So that seems to swallow and include Pesach, but it starts before Pesach. So what's the source of the holiday? So in the continuation of this source, this Talmudic source here, it says that the Baitu scene you see in the middle there of a Babylonian Talmudic page, on page 7 on the top. In the middle. Shayu Baitu sin on Mimatzerad Achar HaShabbat Nithalahem Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai Vamalahem Shotim Minayin Lachem Because the Balthusians would say that when should Shavuot be on Sunday. Why? Because it's seven weeks after the Omer, which is on Sunday. And Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai said, Bafugians, you are fools. So in this source, who's the interlocutor against the Bafugians on the issue of when the Omer should be? It's Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai himself. Now this is, a, this is a bit of a later source, so I'm not sure it has the same... Um, uh, historicity as the earlier sources, but it still at least is a certain assumption over time that he becomes, or he's seen, or maybe there's a tradition that he is this leading polemicist on this issue too. Here's a thesis. Why did Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai make an enactment about day two and forbidding eating of the barley until the end of day two? Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, I would suggest, 
was keenly aware of the situation he was in. And what type of enactments would help steer the traditional people, the Jewish people, the Pharisees and their followers in a post-temple world? He made enactments about Sukkot, he made enactments about Rosh Hashanah, and we actually know he made an enactment about Kiddush HaChodesh and the calendar. Indeed, I would suggest that the calendar might have been really paramount and up there in his agenda. There was a real issue and a real problem that he faced. The issue and the problem that he faced is how do we continue the calendar, which is the rhythm of our time, and orchestrates and coordinates Jewish religious life in a post-temple world? How do we keep our traditional calendar going forward? Crucial to that, of course, is to deal with the witnesses and where they go and for their testimony to continue. And there's actually another crucial day to very much flag and to mark that it falls out at a certain time. And that's day two. Because there's this alternative position out there that thinks it's not day two, but thinks it's actually Sunday. Now, if I had more time, I could tell you, but I'll tell you outside, but I could show you. It's not just that there's this Bothusian position that thinks it's Sunday. The Bothusian position actually has all sorts of adherents. We know this from various Second Temple works like the Book of Jubilees, like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Actually, there's a much bigger debate going on. It's not just about when do you do the omen. Because when you do the Omer, first of all, of course, has a ripple effect for when you keep which holidays? Shavuot. But actually, the position of Sunday is actually part of a whole alternate tradition that thinks that an entire calendar should not be a lunar calendar, but rather a solar calendar. In Second Temple times, there is a very well-established alternate sectarian position that the entire calendar, which, by the way, in the Torah is not as clear as you would like. And if you want to know where it goes, and the sectarians understood it as a solar calendar. Actually, we know more about their position. There's in the book One Enoch and the book of Jubilees, and also confirmed in various complex ways in the Dead Sea Scrolls, although there's all sorts of scholarship about this and it gets mathematically complicated. But the basic position is actually perfectly, beautifully neat. The solar calendar is 364 days, which is perfectly divisible into 52 weeks. The advantage of that perfect. Now, the only problem with that is that a year actually, a solar year is 365 and a quarter. They don't tell us how they make that adjustment. So scholars posit that maybe every 24 years they made an adjustment added a month. But basically, every year was 364 days. Seven perfect weeks. 
Actually, they tell us that day one of the calendar is always a Wednesday. Where do they get that from? What was created on Wednesday? The sun. You count day one as Wednesday. So Nisan 1, or the first month 1, begins on Wednesday. And then you start to count. So if you do that, when will Pesach come out? Also on a Wednesday. Then they understand Mimacharat HaShabbat not to be, it'll be a Sunday, but actually it's not the Sunday in Passover, it's the Sunday after Passover. Ten days later. What's the advantage of this calendar? Two obvious advantages. One is everything is set. You can work out with your boss. You can get off when you need to. It's always going to come out on the same days. Pesach will always be on a Wednesday. Shavuot will always be on a Sunday. And that's the second advantage. Holidays will never fall out on Shabbat. Because theologically, the holiday on Shabbat actually raises complexities. Because the holidays of Odah override Shabbat. That's the Pharisaic and rabbinic tradition. And the sectarians thought not. And the sectarians understood in their interpretation that the holidays never will run into that conflict. So now there's more at stake. Actually, you could read inside a little bit on bottom of page 8 into page 9. Is it okay if I go another five, ten minutes? Yes. If yes. somebody needs to leave, I'm not insulted, but I feel like this, these sources are just too fascinating. On the bottom of page 8, you have a Dead Sea Scroll source. Okay. Let's just read this source together. It's a remarkable source. It's from the Temple Scroll, one of the main scrolls that was found in Qumran. Actually, a very long scroll that we almost found in its entirety. Nigal Yadin, who was so you know, central and pivotal in finding and recovering the scrolls, wrote the main commentary on the Temple Scroll. Actually, quite an ingenious commentary. So here on the bottom of page 8, We'll just read a little bit or you can follow in the English on top page 9. Bottom page 8. So the temple, one word about temple scroll. Temple scroll restates a lot of verses of Torah in a different order. A lot of what's in the temple scroll is in our Torah. So here, bottom of page 8. So this is basically just citing from Torah. Actually, we know where it's cited from the Torah. That same Leviticus 23, by Yikra Chav Gimel. And it's telling us about the holiday of Pesach, Targamatzot. And then it tells us certain offerings you bring. And then it tells us, uh, let's say on the third line, Biyom Hanifata Omer, it tells us about the Omer. Bisafarta, Sheva Shabbatot Mimot. And then after the Shabbat Shabbatot, Yasu Kichag HaShvuot Hu Vachag HaBikurim. So seven weeks after the Omer, this seems similar to us, Shavuot. Follow along, third line, end of the line. 
I'm in the fourth line on page 8 at the bottom. Shiva Shavuot. What's strange? What just happened? It says Pesach, then it says Omer, then it says seven weeks, Shavuot. And then what does it say? Count seven weeks. What? We're at Shavuot already. Count seven weeks? Mm-hmm. Yes, count another seven weeks. Three lines on the bottom. Tisperu chamishim yom. Imagine this. If you miss the Omer the first time, you get another chance. And you count from Shavuot 50 days until the Yayin. The Omer is the holiday of the barley. Seven weeks and then the holiday of Shavuot, which is the holiday of the wheat. Seven weeks, and then the holiday of the wine. Seven weeks, and then the holiday of the oil. These wacky Dead Sea Scrolls. Religious um, sect. Does that work agriculturally? What? Does that work agriculturally? It works agriculturally, apparently, from all commentators, beautifully. That that really is the order in the land of Israel of the harvest. First the barley, then the wheat, then the wine, then the oil. If you look here on page 9, I have a little chart for you. Consecration of priests happens on Nisan day 1. Then on Nisan day 26, which is a Sunday, barley. Then seven weeks later, on a Sunday, wheat. Seven weeks later, on a Sunday, wine. Around two ba'af, right? Really interesting. Seven weeks later, 22nd Elul. And then another holiday, the wood offerings. Now we start to appreciate what's at stake. There are two very different Judaisms, at least maybe more. But we could simplify. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is actually facing a pretty complicated landscape. The landscape is without a temple, how do we keep the Jewish story going? And there's actually internal confusion among the Jews. They're not on the same page. And something as basic as, and now we could just spell it out, beginning, when do you do the Omer? Okay, probably could live with disagreement on that. When do you have Shavuot? Whether that starts to trigger off a chain of Pentecostal holidays, or is that totally not our tradition? And just even more fundamentally, are we under a lunar or lunar solar calendar, or are we under a solar calendar? If you look back in Jubilees for a second, page 8 in the middle, read it on your own, but it's a remarkable passage. Jubilees, the second temple work, which is totally devoted to the solar calendar and rails against the foolish people who follow the lunar calendar. So we could hear the opposite position. Read that source there in Jubilee 6. After telling over the Noah story, where the dates emerge for the first time, Jubilee starts to make it clear, we're under a solar calendar and not like those Jews who are following a lunar calendar. So the Pharisees, of course, have to put their flag and plant their flag firmly 
under the position of the lunar calendar. And we know, I have one scholar here, Talmon, but we know this in general, that calendars and controlling the calendar is such a fundamental indicia of control. That's why when emperors stand up, think even Napoleon, year one, right? And that has such an old tradition to it. Or uh, in, in Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge also, year one. And this is a story that haunts us into the 20th century. Controlling the calendar, and those examples are ugly examples, of course, but even in positive senses. Controlling the calendar, and we know this from our Bartos about Parshato, right? We set a new calendar. That's the registering of us as a new people. So controlling the calendar is crucial. But here's Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's problem. Without a temple... How are you going to mark the calendar? So you could keep the lunar cycle going, but how are you going to plant a firm flag on day two? So in temple times, if we could trust the Mishnah, maybe we make a whole hoopla and a whole ceremony. But in post-temple times, what are we going to do? Comes along Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, I'd actually say there's a dual solution. One is we tell the story, Mishnah Menachot Parak and two, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said, there's an enactment. You have to mark this day in your calendar. This is part of your religious duty. This day, no eating of barley, still through this day. It's just a way of publicizing, of enacting, that there's a regulation, that the people now know that this day you have to keep it on your calendar, on your Eretz Yisrael post-temple calendar or your diaspora calendar, whatever your calendar, more Eretz Yisrael is focused. This is a day of enactment. Yeah. Why wouldn't he argue that it should, you should eat it? Ah. Is it, if that's ah, okay, so I don't have... Shouldn't he say... Okay, so I would say I, this question has troubled me too. Does everybody get the overall thesis now? There's a one last question. The overall thesis is Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai has a game plan. His game plan is to try to maintain order and the calendar is really up there. In fact, I could argue that a lot of his enactments turn on the calendar. Maybe even the shofar on day one of Rosh Hashanah's calendaric. A lot of his enactments, I would suggest, relate to the calendar. And a crucial day is day two, and to mark it. Now there's a more technical question. So what's the best way to mark it? Is the way to mark it to say you're allowed to eat or refrain from eat? And to me that's a more technical question because I don't know, you could do it either way. You could say you can't eat, you can't eat, you can eat at noon. I don't, he could have gone different ways. I'm a little bit troubled. Zeitlin, Professor Zeitlin from the 20th century, right, and they might be familiar to you, was sufficiently troubled, although I don't think he had this whole thesis going, but he still was troubled. Bottom page 9, I quote him here. He says, that Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai said, day 2 is mutar, not asur. Exactly your question, Baruch Shekivanta. The only problem with Zeitlin is, he says that without any manuscript evidence. So I don't think you could go with that. By the way, once we're on page 9 and we're saying interesting ideas from Weiss, Dor Dor Bidarshav, a very radical, fascinating work of Wissenschaft scholarship, quotes Yelenik, 
19th century great Viennese rabbi and professor who suggests that the entire Spirat HaOmer is a, day, a way of marking the calendar. That's the continuation of this line of thinking. Interesting. Okay, so do I have any suggestion? I have one suggestion on your question. I'm not sure it's totally convincing. I'm not as plagued by your question as you are, but I still have a suggestion. The suggestion is that in the... Yes. The question is, assuming the whole thesis is right, still, wouldn't it make more sense that to mark day two as a day where you go eat instead of refrain from eating? That's the question. Again, I'm not... Yeah, to me, the main thing is to mark the day and make a rule and make sure you have it on your pocket calendar. It opens the question of when you can eat. Yes. So but you have to remember that that's the pivotal day. Still, so I, I would want to suggest the following, and here maybe I'm really letting the imagination fly too much in a minute. The first part, less so. In the sectarian, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's actually clear that they would offer more offerings than we did on that day. And it's part of a chain. So for them, day two is a festive day. So I just want to suggest on that ground that maybe to mark it in his rabbinic way, for him it wasn't a festive day, but it was actually a day of refraining. One suggestion. Second suggestion, in this tradition it's falling out in Pesach. To make a festive day in Pesach, I don't know if it has the same appeal because that already gets, you know, we're in Pesach as opposed to these other traditions where we're post-Pesach. Second suggestion, hand their hand. Suggestion? Yeah. So maybe thematically. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I have a last suggestion. This is what I was talking about. Maybe I'm going off the deep end with wild imagination here. It would actually take time to even partially convince you, and I don't think I could give you take that time from you, but I'll just throw it out there, which I'm a little hesitant to do. This day also might have significance, not just for the Bothusians and the Sadducees and the Enochites and the Jubileans and the Temple Scroll and the Qumranites, but it might have relevance for early Christians. Because if you think of what this day is for early Christians, and here actually I do have sources, bottom page 9 into page 10. I'll just say it outside. There's actually a fundamental debate in the early church between the Eastern and Western church, which Eusebius tells us about about when to celebrate Easter. We know here in America, right, we're familiar, Easter Sunday. That actually is a continuation of a very old tradition of the Western Church. But the Eastern Church, which was like Asia Minor and likely included this tradition in Jerusalem and the land of Israel, actually had a different tradition. Their tradition, and there's already a division in the Gospels, about when did the crucifixion happen. Their tradition is the Quarto de Sumerian position, that the crucifixion happened on the 
14th of Nisan. In that case, the resurrection happens on the third day, which is the 16th, which actually coincides with the Omer. Now, I thought I was letting the imagination run wild, and then I just did a, a little digging, and I found a homily from the 7th century from an Eastern Church father. Bottom of page 10. Sitting in the center of the Eastern Church in Constantinople, and his sermon about the Pascha in the 6th century. Bottom of page 10, but the offering of the sheep that they performed on the 16th. So this Eastern Church father knows Rabbi Yochum ben Zakkai won. The rabbinic position that's most familiar to him is Makarat Shabbat the 16th. This one that they offered up on behalf of the salvation of the whole human dough in accordance with the precept of the law does not apply anymore. Right? Because there's no temple. From his from this sixteenth day also began the computation of the weeks that led to Pentecost. For when the sixteenth day began, a day which is always a Sunday, so here's this convergence. At this point it's no longer the sixteenth of Nisan, there's a collapsing of traditions here. Because actually in the initial uh, tradition, I think even the Eastern Church, the fourteenth of Nisan was on a Friday. So then it came out to Sunday. Either way, that's a tradition, which also appears as the first one of the following week. Our Lord rose from the dead and offered up himself to God. Okay, this is referring to Jesus, the Father instead of the sheep for the salvation of the whole human dough. Furthermore, there is no offering of the sheep anymore as the Lord offered him up himself to God, the Father instead of the sheep. In this homily, the Omer, symbolically, is the resurrection. Here, I don't mean to be, you know, I'm going out there uh, doing my uh, practice to give an Easter sermon here. I would say even more that there's a certain symbolism there of that this offering permits the new. So my last wild suggestion is for all these reasons maybe best is the day of no, prohibition. The day of the all. And even though that's a little wild thinking, Rabbi Yochum ben Zakkai is living, living late first century CE in the land of Israel where the Church of Jerusalem is already up and running, I don't think it's beyond the plausible to at least flirt with that suggestion. That's a common question, then I'll review just everything one minute. Can you make another wild suggestion? Yes. Go back to the beginning. Why have a Tanya Homer at all? Yes. After all, it's permitted in Bamidbar, it's permitted in Bahrain, right? only have it in, in, in mm-hmm. focus on the term Omer. Yes, it's, it's an appropriate measure. 
You could have had a sub. You could have had cold, perhaps. But Omer is being focused on. Stay with the Oracle book. What is Omer so connected to, to otherwise in, in the Torah? The answer is man. Look at Harshat Man. Omer shows up all the time, including that uh, uh, that that uh, Moshe tells Aaron to preserve and consent. Omer Haman, the Dorotehen, disappears after that. Man and the 16th day of Nisan are very closely connected. Because in Yoshua Perikdalit, that's the day that Man stops. And, and then you get to eat the Abur Ha'aros. Yom Tenef, Yom Ha'omer, is also the annual commemoration of arriving in Eretz's the original Zionist holiday. Um, this is a great example of two things. One, a beautiful suggestion, and two, I said that hopefully this will unleash a lot of other creative thinking. Uh, so thank you for the suggestion. Let me just summarize in one minute what I was trying to deal with today. I was, first of all, just getting us to remember something that we sort of have turned into this counting, but it's clear in early sources it meant more, and I think for us, even, you know, there's an active recovery here. This is a day that should matter more. Um, I posed the question why Rabbi Yochanan Menzaka in a post-temple world would have taken the time in his spare enactments to make an enactment about day two refrain from the Omer. And I suggested that if you look in the Talmudim, the question gets compounded, not answered. So what I try to show tonight is first that this Hanefa Omer actually has much more impressive stature and pedigree in Vayikrach of Gimel and in Philo and even some hint in rabbinic sources. Actually, in rabbinic sources of the Mishnah, there becomes this whole ritual and performance that maybe, in fact, existed, and certainly rhetorically, we reiterate and we discuss. And there, the Mishnah already gives us a hint, because it's caught up in a sectarian dispute. Here, I try to bring it back to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka and say, well, sectarian disputes were his disputes. We know this from early rabbinic sources. In fact, this very source, later on, is attributed to uh, this very dispute is attributed to one where he was a focal figure. If that's the case, that could explain his action here. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai had to step in the breaches and help manage a very uh, critical moment of crisis. And one of the points of crisis is the calendar. And how will that calendar be navigated? It's not just the Balthusians who have an alternate position. It's all sorts of Second Temple sectarians including those who are firmly embedded in alternate traditions of succession of Pentecostal holidays, nay, something even larger. Not lunar calendar, but a solar calendar. And this is crucial for him to navigate this crisis. One of the ways he does this is through making um, the procedure of administering lunar testimony continue and setting a venue. And another way is doing something about this Yom Hanif. Part of the solution is in the Mishnah, we recite that ritual, and we remember that something mattered. But he did something more, made an enactment about that day. So we mark that day. Then at the very end, we dealt with the question, why did he mark it in a negative? Couldn't he have marked it in a positive? And here, I want to give very various suggestions. One was to distinguish himself from the Kumranites, for her, 
it was a joyous day. Second, it was already embedded within the holiday of Pesach, which would make marking it in a festive way more complex. And then the third, which might just suggest another context to this entire enactment also. In addition to the Qumranites and the solar calendar, Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai also no doubt lived in a world of early Christians. And that might actually have particular resonance on this day too. Because the Eastern Church understood this day to be a day of great symbolic significance to them, that at least in the later homily is connected to resurrection and perhaps even newness. For all those reasons, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai might mark, if he's going to mark this day, he has to distinguish it from this day's significance from an early Christian tradition by underscoring the old and the negative on this day.